0: Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. In the last episode of our series on Roman von Ungern-Sternberg, we followed Ungern as he staged a tactical retreat into Mongolia to avoid the Bolshevik advance. He arrived to find a nation in turmoil. Back in 1919, Chinese warlord Xu Xu Zheng had led his forces to occupy the country on behalf of the Republic of China, The Mongol army was disarmed, and the divine ruler of the nation, the Bogd Khan, was placed under house arrest. Things looked pretty desperate for Mongolia, until Ungern arrived on the scene with his Asiatic cavalry division. 1,500 fighters of various nationalities, all under the Baron's command. Ungern led his men to rescue the Bogd Khan, defeat the warlord Shu's forces, and liberate the Mongolian capital city of Urga. This liberation was accompanied by a massive pogrom of the city's Chinese and Jewish populations that lasted three whole days. When the dust settled, the Bogd Khan may have been shocked at what he saw, but he was so grateful to be free of the Chinese that he granted Ungern wide-ranging privileges, including the command over the Mongol army. Practically controlling the entire government, Ungern's highly authoritarian style of rule began to alienate the Mongol populace that once saw him as a hero. But he didn't much care about that. He was solely focused on building up his strength to launch an attack on the Bolsheviks back in Russia. Unbeknownst to him, Mongol resistance fighters with Soviet backing were gaining strength. What was to follow was sure to be a dramatic final showdown between Ungern and the forces of Bolshevism. On the 21st of May, the Asiatic cavalry divisions set out from Urga. They were bound first for kyatka that town on the northern border where the revolutionaries had set up their base. Upon arriving there on the 1st of June, Ungern had discovered that he had arrived too late. There, he found the 35th Division of the 5th Red Army, reinforced by a sizable number of Mongolian auxiliaries. A force of 8,000 men, the Asiatic Cavalry Division was outnumbered 2 to 1. The battle got off to a less than ideal start when one of Ungern's auxiliary units, led by a prominent Mongol prince named Bayar Gun, charged headlong directly into the enemy's defenses in front of the remainder of the army. They were all mown down by enemy machine guns, and Bayar himself was killed in action. Despite the urging of his officers to attack as soon as possible, Ungern held the main force back for ten whole days, waiting for a date that his fortune-tellers had deemed to be auspicious. On June 11th, the main attack commenced. The Red Cavalry Division, led by a young officer named Konstantin Rokasovsky, employed an old Mongol tactic against the Whites, charging with his cavalry into the front lines and staging a false retreat to bait the enemy into following them into a trap. It worked exactly as intended. The Whites charged after them and soon found themselves trapped in a ravine. There, they were subjected to the machine guns and artillery pieces that the enemy had been able to move into position while Ungern had held his men back for so long. After two days of fighting, Ungern was somehow able to guide his broken force to safety in the Mongolian countryside. While the remnants of the Asiatic Cavalry Division nursed their wounds to the north, the Red Army commenced their invasion of the country. On July 6th, communist forces occupied Urga without a fight. The token force Ungern had left behind to defend the city had already fled. They were greeted by the masses with near-universal acclaim. The people were more than happy to be rid of Ungern and his oppressive regime. The Mongolian People's Party wasted no time in establishing a new government, nearly all the prominent figures of the previous government were arrested, save for the Bogd Khan himself. The Bogd Khan, as the Mongol revolutionaries argued, had not taken an active part in the crimes of the previous government. Rather, he was an unwilling pawn in the Mad Baron's machinations. For the time being, Buddhism remained the official state religion and the Bogd Khan remained as head of state, but he only had three more years left to live and once he was dead, the Soviet Union would be able to greatly increase their influence on the country, to the point that most historians describe the Mongolian People's Republic as a mere satellite state of the Soviet Union. But right at that moment, Ungern and the remnants of his army remained at large. Following the battle at Kiatka, he traveled westward along the border before attempting once more to cross into Russian territory. Along the way, he raided villages he suspected of harboring Bolsheviks or Jews, which is to say, most of the villages he passed by. Property was requisitioned, men were killed, women were raped and killed. During this time, a number of small-scale skirmishes were fought, mostly to inconclusive results. One victory for the Whites came at the end of July. The Asiatic Cavalry Division happened upon the monastery of Gusinoye Yozero, a location held sacred by the Buryat soldiers in Ungern's ranks. Hoping to raise their morale, Ungern resolved to take the monastery. He sent his baggage trains, including all of his wounded men, along the main road overlooked by the monastery. This was successful in drawing enemy artillery fire, as the rest of his men assaulted the monastery itself. The defenders fought well, but they were simply outnumbered. Following the battle, Ungern had the 400 or so survivors lined up, and, seemingly at random, singled out one out of every four as a Jew or a commissar. These unlucky ones were summarily executed, While the rest were merely flogged and then released. The Red Army Command scrambled to organize a response to Ungern's re-emergence, as they were under the assumption that his entire force had been killed or captured at Kyatka. The following days even saw a few instances of regular Red Army soldiers fighting communist partisans by mistake. Ultimately, though, the Red Forces could have simply sat back and watched as Ungern was undone by his own men. Ungern had hoped that his army's presence in the Trans Hall would inspire a general revolt against Bolshevik rule in Siberia, but when the story circulated throughout the region about how Ungern would lock entire families in barns, light them on fire, and loudly chant prayers over their screams as they burned to death, it's not really surprising that people weren't flocking to his banners as they had been before. Ungern eventually decided to cut his losses and return to Mongolia, and from there traveled to Tibet. Refusing to publicly admit defeat, however, he led his officers to believe that they were traveling further into Russia, to link up with white army remnants still active in the region. Regardless of whether or not they bought this story, most of the men knew that the jig was up. They numbered now a little less than 500. They didn't stand a chance of accomplishing their mission at this point, and so they resolved to follow the god of war no further. They planned to mutiny, taking however many soldiers would join them to Manchuria, where a thriving community of white Russian emigres had already begun to form. The plotters tried to get Ungern's second-in-command, Boris Rezukin, in on the conspiracy. He refused and tried to have the conspirators arrested. Ignoring his order, his own men opened fire on him, wounding him in the leg, before one of them finished him off with a pistol shot to the back of the head, declaring, according to one source, as if straight from a bad action movie, quote, You would drink our blood? Drink this instead. End quote. Worried that Ungern would soon discover Rezukin's murder, the conspirators decided on the spot to kill him as well. Under the cover of the night, an armed group attacked what they thought to be the Baron's tent with grenades and rifle fire. Shortly thereafter, Ungern crawled out of his actual tent, which was nearby. He was under the impression that the Communists had caught up with him at last. He hadn't the slightest inkling that he had been betrayed. In the ensuing confusion, Ungern managed to find his horse, and he retreated to a safe distance. Not too long afterwards, he returned to the camp and confronted the conspirators, ordering them to stand down and demanding answers. Ungern was alone. He was staring down about a dozen armed men who had just tried to kill him only moments ago. The Baron's presence alone was so intimidating that the mutineers merely stood frozen by fear, When one of them finally spoke up to say that they wanted to go east to save themselves, Ungern launched into a lengthy tirade, telling them that if they went east they would "...gnaw each other's bones in famine, and that the Reds would exterminate every one of them, one by one." This failed to win any of them back to his side. Midway through his rant, a shot rang out in the night, narrowly missing the Baron. Cursing his mutinous soldiers, he ran off into the night and joined one of his Mongol regiments, believing them to be more loyal than the Russians, and that they wouldn't dare harm the god of war. As it turned out, however, his Mongol soldiers were just as eager to be rid of Ungern as the Russians. The next morning, the leader of the regiment, Bishrelt Gun Sundui, while riding alongside Ungern, casually asked him for a match to light a cigarette. While Ungern was distracted, rifling through his satchel, Sundui tackled the Baron off his horse, hogtied him, and presented him to a nearby patrol of Red Army soldiers. The news of the Baron's capture was greeted with great excitement in Moscow. Not only was Ungern the last major white army leader still standing, but his capture also presented an excellent political opportunity. Upon receiving the news, Vladimir Lenin relayed the following instructions to the director of secret police in Siberia quote, Devote special attention to this matter, determine the reliability of the charges, and, if they are reliable, of which there seems little doubt, hold a public trial, conduct it with maximum speed. And shoot him. This is an example of a show trial, although Lenin himself preferred the term model trial. In such a trial, the guilt of the defendant had already been assessed, and the outcome of the trial was predetermined. The trial served the purpose of publicly dispensing justice and exposing the crimes of the defendant. Most importantly, these trials served to discredit the cause of the White Army. This method of dispensing justice was familiar to anyone who had been observing recent political developments. Newspapers in America and Britain reported Ungern's execution days in advance of his actual trial. Ungern, knowing what fate awaited him, attempted to take his own life while in Soviet custody, but he was frustrated in both attempts. Ungern arrived in the city of Novosibirsk on the 1st of September, 1921. Over the next two weeks, he underwent constant interrogation so as to determine his guilt before the trial actually began. Ungern's captors described him as being quote, very tall and very thin and very direct in speaking. His head is not very large, but his forehead is high. He has an overgrown light red beard, gray eyes, and on his forehead is a scar, received in duels in the East. He is dressed in a shabby yellow red Mongolian gown with a loose belt, the cross of St. George around his neck. And a Mongolian decoration on his shoulder. End quote. Surprisingly, Ungern was very forthright during his interrogation. He made no attempt to deny or obfuscate his crimes. He willingly admitted to everything. By the end of it, his interrogators determined that he was, quote, by no means psychologically healthy. He was pathologically impulsive, infected by mysticism, and he, as the report ends, certainly did not have the capacity to run a country. End quote. The public trial was held on september 15th given the public spectacular nature of this trial it was held in a large concert hall rather than in a conventional courtroom tickets were given out in advance to soviet bureaucrats and soldiers of the red army sources claimed that over a thousand people were present mainly workers and soldiers the trial began at noon everyone in the audience stood resolutely as the members of the tribunal proceeded onto the stage they were five in number each of them Bolshevik Party stalwarts. After some opening statements by the prosecutor, a man named Yermageyan Yaroslavsky, who, ironically enough, was of Jewish extraction, the defendant was brought out. The Proceedings began with Yaroslavsky asking Ungern his name, rank, and political affiliation. To the former two questions, he responded, Lieutenant General Baron Roman von Ungern-Sternberg. To the later question, he replied that he belonged to no political party. The head of the tribunal then read to ungern the charges against him they were as follows one aiding the expansionist plans of japan by attempting to create a central asiatic state and seeking to overthrow soviet rule in the transbaikal two seeking to overthrow soviet power in russia in general and siberia in particular with the intention of restoring the monarchy and placing mikhail romanov on the throne three committing mass atrocities and torture against peasants and workers, communists, state workers, Jews, children, Chinese revolutionaries, etc., and so on. To these charges, Ungern pleaded guilty, although he took umbrage with the accusation that he'd collaborated with the Japanese. Through the trial, Ungern sat silently upon the bench, his eyes downcast, his arms wrapped in the sleeves of his golden deal. When he did respond, his statements were short and to the point, no witnesses were called upon, and he made no great effort to defend himself. In fact, when his state-appointed defense counsel suggested the idea that they explore the option of pursuing an insanity plea, Ungern rejected the idea outright. The focus of the trial then became not the question of Ungern's guilt itself, but the question as to what lay behind his guilt. Yaroslavsky, who would go on to lead an organization called the League of Militant Atheists, directed his line of questioning towards Ungern's religious convictions. He argued that all of the bloody baron's atrocities had been committed in the name of God. This, Jaroslawski claimed, was exemplary of the dangers of religion. Ungern's noble birth also placed him under scrutiny. Baron Ungern and other nobles like him were, quote, parasites who latched themselves onto the body of Russia and sucked on it for centuries, quote. As the argument went, before the revolution, nobles wielded arbitrary power and accumulated undeserved wealth. When the revolution threatened to strip them of their arbitrary power and redistributed their undeserved wealth, the nobles took up arms to destroy the revolution. In his closing statement, Yaroslavsky, addressing the audience directly, claimed that if Ungern had been successful, he would have instituted a military dictatorship, restored the Tsar, and stripped the workers and peasants of all their power and rights. This could not be allowed to pass, and it was for that reason that Ungern had to be killed. With Yaroslavsky's lecture concluded, the matter went to the tribunal for the final pronouncement. Following a brief deliberation, the tribunal declared that they found Ungern guilty of all charges. The sentence, of course, was death. For one such as Ungern, the head of the tribunal declared, death would be merciful, similar to the compassion one shows to a sick dog. At the end of the trial, Ungern was asked if he had any last words to say in his defense. He had nothing to say. In total, Ungern's trial lasted about five and a half hours. The sentence was carried out that very night, most likely by a firing squad. Because the execution was carried out in secret, a number of legends arose surrounding the Baron's final moments. Some said that when he was shot, his St. George's Cross shattered, and its fragments struck the executioners. Another says that he was offered a temporary stay of execution, if he could sing the first verse of the Internationale, but instead he began singing God Save the Tsar. Others claim that he was so dangerous that he had to be tied and bound, and he was executed by a single bullet to the back of the head. Still, others believe that he somehow managed to break out of prison, and ran off into the wilderness to continue the good fight. After having parted ways with the god of war, what remained of the Asiatic cavalry division went through with their plan to travel east. Plagued by internal division and hounded by red forces at every turn, The few men who remained crossed the border into China in early 1922, and all went their separate ways. Some tried to join up with the last of the white forces in the Russian city of Vladivostok, others decided to work for the Japanese in various capacities. Most decided, like Gregory Semyonov, to settle in the Russian émigré communities of Manchuria. Unfortunately for them, many were arrested when the Soviet Union invaded the region at the end of the Second World War, Semyonov among them. He was deported back to Russia, and executed by hanging in 1946. Upon receiving word of Ungern's capture and death, the Bogd Khan offered services to be held in his honor across the country. As I briefly mentioned earlier, the Bogd Khan remained as head of the Mongolian state until his own death in 1924. That same year also saw the death of Vladimir Lenin. His successor, Joseph Stalin, sought to exercise greater control over Mongolia. While it always remained nominally independent, Stalin and the Soviet government began to direct Mongolia's complete transition to a socialist state. Buddhist institutions were suppressed, the agricultural sector was collectivized, the economy was industrialized, and so on. Discontent with the communist government boiled over in 1932, when a tide of rebellion swept the nation. Anti-communist guerrilla fighters took to the countryside, targeting communist officials for extrajudicial killings a tactic very reminiscent of Ungerns, in an attempt to expel the foreigners from Mongolia once and for all. The rebellion was swiftly put down with Soviet assistance, but, following that year, Soviet policy in Mongolia was relaxed a little bit. During the Second World War, a series of battles were fought in Mongolia between the Soviets and the Japanese, most notably the Battles of Kalkan Gol, in which the Japanese were defeated and forced to divert their expansion efforts towards the Pacific rather than Siberia. Ungern's greatest legacy was perhaps the fate of Mongolia. Ironically, Ungern was perhaps the greatest reason why Mongolia spent seven decades as a socialist satellite state of Russia. Had Ungern never taken over the country in the first place, the Soviets simply would not have had reason to intervene, and thus Mongolia would have likely remained in Chinese hands for the time being. Who's to say how Mongolian history might have unfolded from there? It's really not my place to speculate. In the West, Ungern's story is not very widely known. English-language sources on the Baron and his life and times are few in number, and, as far as I can surmise, generally inferior to the Russian-language accounts. Even within academic circles, Ungern's story, while rather interesting, is seen as a sideshow to the main action of the revolution and civil war. Outside of academia, Ungern's story is perhaps best known from a Ferdinand Ostendowski novel, Beasts, Men, and Gods a riveting, if a bit spurious, account of the author's travels in the Far East during the Civil War, in which Baron Ungern is featured rather prominently. The character of Baron Ungern lends itself rather well to fiction, and over the years, he has been depicted in a number of films, video games, and books, such as the 1938 German novel I, Order, in which he is featured, as one might expect in Nazi Germany, as a protagonist. His valiant crusade against the Bolsheviks and Judaism is portrayed as a tragedy, more recently, there have been renewed interest in the Baron's story thanks to the increasing popularity of alternate history on the internet. In particular, the Hearts of Iron IV mod Kaiserreich Legacy of the Weltkrieg, in which the White Army wins the Russian Civil War, and Ungern leads Mongolia at the game's starting date of 1936. It should go without saying that Ungern is far better known in Mongolia and Russia itself. Initially, Baron Ungern first became a sort of messianic figure. As Soviet repression intensified following the Bogd Khan's death, many in Mongolia believed that Ungern was in fact not dead, and prophesied that he might one day return to free the Mongolian people from Russia. During the rebellion of 1932, it was hoped that Ungern would return from the north once again to save them. Towards the end of Beasts, Men, and Gods, published a decade prior, Osandowski writes, in the Mongol yurts and at the fires of the Buryat, Mongol, Jungark, Kyrgyz, Kalmyk, and Tibetan shepherds, still speak of the legend of this son of crusaders and privateers. From the north, a white warrior came and called upon the Mongols to break the chains of slavery which fell upon our freed soil. This white warrior was the incarnated Genghis Khan, and predicted the coming of a greatest of all Mongols, who would spread the fair faith of the Buddha and the glory of the offspring of Genghis, Ogadai, and Kublai Khan. And so shall it be. A more contemporary account comes from James Palmer, author of The Bloody White Baron, a more straightforward work of history published in 2008 that proved a valuable source for my research. In the book's conclusion, Palmer recalls an anecdote of his time in Mongolia. He was speaking to a Mongol translator when he casually mentioned that he was writing a book on the topic of Baron Ungern. The translator replied, "...oh, Baron Ungern? In my family, he is a god." Apparently, her grandfather had been some sort of official in the Bogd Khan's government, and at some point came into possession of a lock of Ungern's hair, which had become a treasured family relic. The translator went on to state that she remembered that prayers were being offered to the god of war, Baron Ungern, during her own childhood in the 1970s. To me personally, Baron Ungern's story is absolutely fascinating. Just hearing the basic outlines of his biography, ethnic German born in Austria with roots in Estonia who became a general in the Russian army and went on to rule Mongolia, absolutely fascinates me. Who was this guy, and how did he end up where he did? I wanted to follow this journey. I hope that, in guiding you along with me, that you have all learned a thing or two about this tumultuous and endlessly fascinating period of history. Or at the very least, I hope to have entertained you. What are your own thoughts on the Baron? Was there anything during this series of episodes you felt was unclear or you'd like to hear more about? Do you have suggestions for future episode topics? If you'd like to ask me any of these questions, or others, please feel free to email me at Pod at gmail.com or contact me via my Twitter account at Kaiser Willem II. I've been your host, Willem Jensen. This has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast, and I'd like to once again thank you for listening. Until next time.